0: In early February 2016, Norse Corp was disintegrating. The high-profile security startup, which described itself as the world's largest dedicated threat intelligence network and was widely known for its innovative live-attack map technology, was falling apart. Its website went dark, Its new CEO, appointed just weeks earlier, after the previous CEO was fired, told employees that they were welcomed to show up to work, but there's no guarantee that they will be paid. Norse, for all intents and purposes, was dead. It was a horrible death, perhaps even the worst demise that a business can experience, complete with allegations about scams, bitter blog posts from former employees, and public clashes on Twitter.
1: It was pretty dramatic. In fact, I don't know of another cybersecurity firm that had as dramatic of a demise as Norse did. It was pretty spectacular.
0: Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. A few days earlier. On February 1st, 2016, Ryan Krebs published in his uber-popular blog, KrebsOnSecurity.com, an article with the headline, Sources, security firm Norse Corp, imploding. In his article, Krebs reported that Norse's CEO and co-founder, Sam Gleins, was asked to step down by the company's board of directors. Krebs then goes on to voice accusations from former employees of the company, such as Mary Lansman, a data scientist who joined Norse in 2014. Quote, I realized that, oh crap, I think this is a scam, Lensman said. They're trying to draw this out and tap into whatever the buzzwords du jour there are and have a product that's going to meet that and suck in new investors. End quote. In his article, Krabs claimed that Norse was the latest in a string of failed companies, some of which he described as being no more than shell companies, with a record of reporting, quote, false and inflated financial statements and failing to deliver on promises made to clients. These accusations spurred a heated debate between Krabs and two former executives of the company. The first was Sam Gleins himself, the recently dismissed CEO of Norse, who wrote in his blog, quote, There were inaccuracies in the article. I was never an owner of a shell company and wouldn't know the first thing about setting one up. End quote. Jason Bleich, Norse's former chief architect, tweeted about the article, saying it was, quote, Bullshit. Just plain not true. I know. I was there. End quote. Brian Krebs replied to Bleich's tweet, saying that he asked Jason, quote, about four to five times to speak on the record. Yet Bleich declined. Naturally, this very public back-and-forth altercation, which included words such as hit-piece, agenda-driven, and fundamentally dishonest reporting, only served to make the article even more popular. Sam Glines said of the Krebs article that it, quote, did incredible damage to Norse and every person or entity affiliated with it. Prior to this article, significant deals were being closed and other strategic discussions underway. But as soon as this article-slash-blog was posted, everything quickly began to fall apart. Deals were terminated or paused. End quote. Jason Bleich, somewhat surprisingly, ended his rant on Krabs' reporting with a rather more personal contemplation. Quote, what is genuinely frustrating about this story is there is literally nothing in it about the actual problems and failures which led to Norse's current situation. Why is Tommy Stainson such a secretive bastard? Why has Norse garnered so much hate? How did such a toxic corporate culture develop that caused so many former employees to want to speak out? What were the blunders which caused financial underrun? A month earlier. Norse was in deep trouble. Outwardly, the company kept the appearance of a successful cybersecurity business, but in reality, it was falling apart. The company was still not making any money, even more than five years after it was founded, and the funds from earlier investments, including a $12 million investment made only a few months earlier by KPMG, a multinational accounting firm, were almost all gone. Quote, Norse was in the latter half of 2015 running at an aggressive monthly burn to put out groundbreaking product and capabilities, wrote Sam Gleins. Unfortunately, we were building ahead of very near-term revenue. This, coupled with lesser-than-expected sales in the second half of 2015, and the delay in our planned Series B financing led to the perfect financial storm that drove the need to cut back our workforce and I take full responsibility for these mistakes. End quote. Howard Bain, Norse's newly installed CEO, confirmed to Brian Krebs that the company did lay off about thirty percent of its workforce quote. The last few weeks have been what Mr. Bain described as a perfect storm, which included the sales miss, scuttled investment, large-scale layoffs, a management change and so-called DNS attack by hackers that knocked its website and attack map offline and brought down its internal email system for about a week. With no money in its coffers and no prospect of new investments, Norse was facing the worst crisis in its short history. And it was then, right when the company was down on its knees, that Brian Krebs decided to publish his investigative piece and gave Norse its coup de grace. a year
1: earlier. I joined uh, Norse in 2014, left in 2015, so I was there just a little bit over a year. I was the director of corporate communications there, so basically handling PR, blog, social media, media relations, stuff like that.
0: That's Anthony Freed. If the name sounds familiar, that's because we had Anthony as a guest before in an episode we did about a mysterious hacker known as The Jester. Plus, he was, until recently, Cyber Reason's Senior Director of Global Communications.
1: So when I was first hired by Norse, that was my first project. And for about six months, we were working on this report, brought in a friend. He and I were doing all the background research around Iran and kind of putting together the context and stuff.
0: The report Anthony is referring to was called Pistachio Harvest. It discussed Iran's cyber attack infrastructure and was published jointly by Norse and the American Enterprise Institute or AEI.
1: Which is pretty notoriously right-wing think tank that was very much in support of a very aggressive approach to containing Iranian threats, both cyber nuclear, and their influence in the region.
0: What did Norse have to do with Iran? Well, this all goes back to Norse's most prized asset, its global network
1: of honeypots. Norse was founded by a technologist who came out of the telecoms industry, who, I guess, famously built out Norway's telecommunications systems and worked with a few other companies.
0: This technologist is Tommy Styson, who, together with Sam Glines, founded Norse in 2011. Previously, he was the Director of Research and Development at Combitel Networks AS, which is a telecommunications company based in Norway, where Steinsen was born.
1: So basically the premise behind Norse was it had a status as basically like a tier one telecoms provider. So it was on the backbone as far as the worldwide net was concerned. The idea behind it was they would spin up all these emulations. Norse was a giant honeypot. So basically, they had hundreds of implementations that to an attacker might look like a network for a big bank or a hospital or other high-value target. And they set up these emulations all over the world. According to the founder, he was even able to get access to put sensors in places that were highly restricted and tough to get into like Iran and China.
0: Norse's honeypots were installed in 47 countries, including, as Anthony Freed noted, some countries which traditionally offer little visibility into their networks. These honeypots served as traps, dressed up as lucrative targets in order to lure attackers, and reportedly collected a whopping 140 terabytes of internet traffic data each day. The Pistachio Harvest Report aimed to prove that Iranian companies were renting and buying IT resources in the U.S. and other Western countries and that some of these resources were being used to conduct cyber attacks on America and its allies, such as against sensitive industrial control systems. But as Anthony recalls, when he tried to get his hands on some of this data as part of his work on the Pistachio Harvest Report, He couldn't get
1: any. And we were being fed information about what the Norse data for the report was going to be. We were never actually given the data itself. So we're kind of working off of notes saying, well, this is what the team is finding. This is what we're going to give you. So kind of writing basically the framework for the report until we got the data. And so we probably had, I don't know, 50 pages of research and placeholders and waiting, waiting for this data, waiting for this data, and it was never coming. And we were told that they had identified potentially tens of thousands of IP addresses that were under control of the Iranian regime that were outside of Iran.
0: But when push came to shove and the report was about to be finalized, Anthony discovered, to his surprise, that
1: There were no IP addresses. Maybe there was a couple that they could tie back. Whether they could actually say it was being used in the attacks, um, highly unlikely. The entire report was just a fraud.
0: So where did the quote-unquote tens of thousands of IP addresses claim come from?
1: So one of the founders, ex-brother-in-law, who had a little bit of experience with threat intelligence via his military service and stuff. uh, He was put in charge of the threat intelligence team and was spearheading this project. He didn't know a damn thing, basically. The founder freaking out because uh, this person who was in charge of putting together all this intelligence had basically been saying he identified tens of thousands of ip addresses under control and then it turned out uh, now now was actually maybe 10 but norse had already started kind of uh teasing this out to the press and to the government agencies and stuff and, and using it even before the, the report was written and so it was at one point just like a panic it's like go find these fucking ip addresses because we already told people we had that's a pretty bad sign
0: The Pistachio Harvest report came out in early 2015, but almost as soon as it was published, it was absolutely ripped apart by the various commentators who read it. One such expert was Robert M. Lee, CEO and co-founder of Dragos, an industrial cybersecurity technology company and a highly respected voice in the cybersecurity community. Robert wrote in his blog, quote, I received an advanced copy of the earlier version of the report that was shared within unclassified government and private industry channels. The report was confusing, but the data clearly revealed that the quote-unquote attacks from Iranian internet addresses were actually internet scans from locations such as Iranian universities and hospitals. Norse was interpreting Internet scanning data as attack intelligence. Most threat intelligence companies rely upon enriched data complemented with access to incident response data of actual intrusions, not scanning activity. Norse also held no verifiable industrial control system expertise, but were quick to make assessments about these systems. And further, when they stated that there were attacks on control systems by Iran, what the data seemed to show was that they actually should have said scans against systems trying to mimic industrial control systems by Iranian IP addresses. The Daily Beast reported that quote, it looks very amateur to me said one former U.S. official with years of experience on foreign government efforts to hack American systems. It seemed that Norse was basing its conclusions that Iran was behind malicious cyber activity, largely on traffic emanating from particular Internet protocol addresses located in Iran. But hackers routinely use IP addresses outside their own country to mask their true location. This alone would make me think it is not Iran, the former official said. Any decent actor worth their salt will jump through a few hoops or anonymize their IP, quote. Why did Norse release such a poorly researched report in the first place? Part of the reason has to do with its decision to collaborate with the American Enterprise Institute. At the time, the Obama administration was negotiating with Iran over lifting the nuclear sanctions imposed on the radical Islamic State and the AEI, who has traditionally taken a hard line against Iran in the past, was determined to prove that Iran was still as dangerous as ever and thus the sanctions should not
1: be lifted. I was always really surprised At the time that they would want to get in bed with a group like that, they're very, very not legitimately mainstream. They have an agenda. So that was a sign right there. So the whole thing was very heavily influenced from the beginning to come out with a specific kind of conclusion about Iran, despite there not being any data to support it. I think at no point they had any substantial data or the data that they did have, they were reading much into or probably didn't have the expertise to be able to evaluate. It was just uh, irresponsible what they were doing, trying to say, write this report, and then we're going to go find the data to fit into it. And that's not how you do intelligence. I mean, the data drives the conclusions, and this was being done backwards for a certain purpose.
0: The second reason, and perhaps one that was responsible for most of Norse's troubles during its short existence, was its founder, Tommy Stainson. I already told you about one of Stainson's earlier roles in the telecom business and how this experience helped him get North off the ground. I wish I could tell you more about the man, but when Jason Bleich called Stainson a secretive bastard, he wasn't kidding. Stainson is so secretive that there's hardly anything about him online except for a random YouTube interview and his LinkedIn profile. This is extremely rare for someone who founded several startup companies. If I had to guess, I would say that Stainson probably paid someone to have all his internet presence erased.
1: The founder, the main technologist behind it, was a very charismatic person who had very forceful personality. So they came across as very authoritative. And they actually did have some chops and had some good skins on the wall from things they'd done. So it gave an air of authenticity where there wasn't any. Anthony
0: Freed says that Stainson induced an attitude of fake it till you make it
1: in Norse. And I think that's kind of where the belief that they were going to be able to produce a solution that did what they said it would do would come in time and if you could just fake it long enough until you make it, everything would be okay. It wasn't. It's so funny because the culture and what it was like to be there at Norse, I can only describe it as very much like what the U.S. has kind of been going through this last few years since Trump was elected in 2016 of just uh, so much lies, misinformation, uh, if you Tell the story enough times, it becomes true, wishful thinking. And once the criticism about the report started
0: being heard, what was the response?
1: Oh, just deny, deflect. Like I said, if, if you just want to imagine what it was like, uh, the culture of Norse, just imagine working for Donald Trump. That's what it was like. For Anthony, the
0: pistachio harvest was one cashew too much.
1: That's when I divorced myself from the project and basically started looking for another job.
0: The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. Cyber Reason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The CyberReason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit CyberReason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. one-and-a-half years earlier. A powerful security tool that shows how Norse's live intelligence identifies the compromised host, malicious botnets, anonymous proxies, and sources of attack that other solutions miss. That's how Norse's press release introduced in July of 2015 what quickly became a mini-sensation in the cybersecurity industry, Norse's live attack map.
1: The attack map basically looked like two-dimensional rendering of the globe, and you'd see what basically looked like laser beams shooting from city to city across, and each one of those is supposed to be an attack. And every once in a while, you'd see like 50 lines go from somewhere like China or Russia and hit Seattle.
0: Nowadays, such live attack maps, jokingly referred to as Pew maps, are quite common. Lots of security companies have them on their websites. But back in 2015, they were still quite rare. And Norse received a lot of media attention because of its innovative map.
1: The attack map was fantastic. It was a great marketing tool. It was a lot of fun. It created quite a lot of buzz throughout the industry and stuff. But the leadership at Norse purposely let people assume they were looking at something that they weren't.
0: According to Norse's press release, quote... The NORSE Live Attack Map is a real time graphical display of our global network of sensors, honeypots, crawlers, and agents working to provide unique visibility into the internet and the dark nets where bad actors operate. The map shows how NORSE's live intelligence identifies what other solutions miss. End quote. In other words, Norse claimed that what you're seeing on its map are attacks being detected in real time by its global network of honeypots. With its pretty graphics and impressive global scope, the live attack map felt like something taken straight out of a science fiction movie. It was very convincing. And
1: this, at the time, there was a lot of attacks going on against Xbox Live and stuff like that. So people go like, Xbox is down. I can't log in. I'm looking at the Norse map and there's all this attack activity going towards Seattle. So that's got to be it. And the company basically let people believe they were looking at live attacks that were happening because Norse is on the internet backbone and can see all this stuff around the world. And that was just absolutely not true.
0: In reality, what the map was actually showing were online interactions with its sensors. An interaction could be almost anything. A cyber attack, but also a harmless ping, an IP scan, even an email being received.
1: So just because you saw a blip doesn't mean there was an actual attack going on, but something was interacting with that sensor.
0: This kind of smoke-and-mirrors approach to security visualization prompted Paul Vixie, a notable computer scientist, to issue this warning in an article published on CircleID.com. Quote, Attack maps lead to grave misunderstandings, such as, in the cloud, everything is crystal clear. Look here, we instantly see where attacks are coming from. Except that we don't. Most of the time, we have absolutely no clue as to where an attack is really originating from. Real attacks are so fuzzy and so numerous that no human can possibly follow them. If someone shows you color animation and claims that it offers any kind of clarity or indeed any kind of human understanding, then you should treat this as a rigged demo and ask why they are insulting you in this way. Attack maps do have their uses. For example, they can be a great sales tool, as noted in a CSOonline.com piece. Some of the professionals CSO spoke with said they'll pop one of the maps up on a screen in the security operations center if they know a client is coming in, but only because of the eye candy factor. In fact, most of the professionals said they've used them, but other than quote-unquote performance art, there isn't any real value in them. End quote. What most, if not all, attack maps are showing are simply pre-recorded attacks or a playback of packet captures by various sensors. So why did Norse's executives decide to pretend as if their map is showing something it wasn't? Even Anthony Freed doesn't have an answer for that question.
1: They would have had a good story around the map if they'd have just told the truth, too. Like I said, we were fed so much bullshit, it was hard to discern what was based on even a grain of truth and what was just wholly fabricated.
0: Two years earlier. On November 24th, 2014, a hacker group calling itself Guardians of Peace broke into Sony Pictures Entertainment Network. They deployed a wiper that erased parts of Sony's network, not before grabbing and then publicly releasing sensitive information such as embarrassing emails by the company's executives. An investigation by the FBI and the NSA concluded that North Korea was behind the breach, possibly in retaliation for Sony's plans to release a comedy called The Interview that made fun of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. But Tommy Stainson had a different
1: idea. So... The founder was convinced he had, based off of some of the logs and stuff that were were dumped publicly, evidence that it was a group of disgruntled employees who had been laid off, who still had some kind of uh, access and also had intimate knowledge of the Sony systems. Because um, if you recall, as the attack was investigated, it was believed that the perpetrators knew exactly what they were looking for. Sony's got hell of a lot of data. And to be able to go through there and almost surgically find the stuff that would be most damaging to leadership and stuff was pretty phenomenal."
0: I am convinced that this is an inside job, Stinson told Bloomberg Politics. The group, Guardians of Peace, nobody has never heard of them. I cannot find a drop of information on them. I would say if we can't say anything on them, They don't exist, and they're certainly not tied to any particular government. Stinson was so convinced he was right and the NSA and FBI were wrong that he sent Norse's senior vice president of marketing to repeat these claims on CBS's 60 Minutes. Stinson definitely wanted to make a splash, and he did, except maybe not the sort of splash he was aiming for.
1: Everybody that was pinging me on the back end, friends and stuff, were just like, what is going on at Norse? To have a company go out and basically say, the NSA doesn't know what they're talking about. It's not the North Koreans. We know exactly who it is. We know more than the NSA, based off of a little bit of evidence that had been dumped publicly. It was insane. At that point, I don't know if it was fabrication or just... Hubris or just an inability to take data and actually convert it to intelligence, but it was a spectacular flail to go on 60 Minutes and try to push back against the NSA. And we had many conversations with the government and stuff, and they, they pushed back on us hard, and I was really surprised that they went forward with that argument publicly.
0: And as usual, when reporters and commentators asked Norse for proof for their claims, there was none. As Anthony Freed wrote in a comment to Brian Krebs' article, quote, When the time came to pony up the evidence, the CTO and CEO, that's Stainson and Gleins, turned tail and left the SVP of marketing and the rest of the team dangling in the wind, looking like overzealous fools peddling snake oil. This was completely unfair and beyond irksome." End quote. five years earlier. It's August of 2011, and two entrepreneurs have just secured $50,000 in seed money from their first investor, Capital Innovators, for their new company, Norse. One of them, Tommy Stainson, is already an experienced startup founder. His first company, Pluto Communications, developed advanced billing systems for the telecommunications industry. Pluto was acquired in 2004 by Psycho.net, who changed its name to Nexicon and pivoted the business towards anti-piracy technology. This pivot failed, but while in Nexicon, Stenson met another employee named Sam Gleins, and the two of them decided to re-pivot Pluto's original billing technology. Kurt Stamberger, Norse's SVP of marketing, explained their decision in a later interview. Quote, The company really started off as servicing payment providers and in the process of doing that work, we found that the actual intelligence that we were gathering from the sensors that we were deploying in doing that function was actually more valuable than the software that we were originally selling. So the company took a hard turn into threat intelligence, and we now have the world's largest privately owned dedicated threat intelligence network. A year later, Norse secured another $3.5 million, and then $10 million more. What did Tommy and Sam do with this money? Well, part of it went to the development of their biggest asset, a worldwide network of honeypots. But a good deal of the money was spent on lavish glittering parties, daily catered meals in the office, and a bunch of shiny sports cars with the new company's logo. Some critics pondered aloud if throwing parties and buying expensive cars isn't a reckless use of Norse's investment money. But the company's founders deflected the criticism, saying that this kind of show-off is absolutely necessary in order to convince more engineers to join the budding startup. If any of Norse's investors questioned these financial decisions, they probably learned about Steenson's entrepreneurial philosophy of fake it till you make it. It's not an uncommon philosophy. The great Muhammad Ali famously said that quote, to be a great champion, you must believe you are the best. If you're not, pretend you are. End quote. Even Bill Gates is well-known for this kind of attitude, like when he and Paul Allen, Microsoft's co-founder, would Altair, a leading computer manufacturer in the 1970s, by saying that they have a new programming language that could run on Altair's machines, when in reality, they had nothing. Obviously, there's a fine gray line between faking it till you make it and simply telling a lie. But it's a harmless lie, isn't it? And anyway, Stainson is an experienced entrepreneur with deep connections in the telecom industry. Pretty soon, the lying and deceiving will stop, and Norse will become a global leader in threat intelligence. Right? Yeah, everything will be okay. I mean... What could possibly go wrong?
1: I think the idea of how Norse was constructed and the kind of intelligence that they were able to tap was probably valuable, but it wasn't intelligence. It was just data, and it takes a whole another level of engagement with that data to actually create threat intelligence out of it, and they were very, very far from that. But I think uh, the hubris of the founders and the executive team, possibly even the board, was a huge factor there. Robert M. Lee,
0: the security expert who publicly debunked Norse's pistachio harvest report, agrees with Anthony and says that the mainstream media is playing into the hands of overly ambitious companies such as Norse. Quote, cybersecurity vendors are being rewarded for bold statements with national headlines that make for great marketing. Proving the claims to be incorrect can be difficult. Even when proving the analysis is ambiguous is much easier, such as the Norse report, it garners less media attention and is cast aside for the more alluring headlines. End quote. Anthony Fried thinks that Norse's problem went even deeper than simply confusing data with intelligence.
1: The idea that expertise in one discipline can automatically transfer to another discipline just because the basic components that you're working at are similar. And that's basically what the founder of Norse believed that, oh, I know telecom inside and out, so this security shit's going to be really easy. Did
0: Stainson learn a lesson from Nors' failure? As he doesn't like to be interviewed, we can't know for sure. But one thing seems certain. He still thinks he can make it big in cybersecurity. In 2018, Stainson founded a new company called Red Torch, which markets spying and anti-spying tools and services for celebrity clients.
1: Overall... For the cybersecurity community, I think it was just a great example of how not to do things, how not to build a company, how not to treat customers, treat the media, treat employees. Really, Norse is probably the case study in how not to create and operate a cybersecurity company. Hang on, hang
0: on. Oh my God. that's it for this episode thank you for listening oh Malicious Life is produced by PI Media this episode was written by me Ran Levy edited by Nate Nelson Hadas Drucker did the sound editing and I helped with the sound design you can find all of our past episodes on our website malicious.life including full transcripts and you can follow us on Twitter at, at @maliciouslife or me at, at @ranlevy. Hayden I can ask us if we have a Mastodon account. Well, not yet. Like many of you I'm following the quite dramatic events on Twitter following Elon's takeover and if anything major happens I'll probably create a Mastodon account for the podcast. So stay tuned. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.